ancient asteroid dust en route to Earth. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A sample of dirt and dust from an asteroid hundreds of millions of miles away is making its way back to Earth with a planned arrival in September. Scientists say the pile of asteroid dirt can unveil the early days of our solar system and possibly explain how life formed on this planet. The OSIRIS-REx mission's principal investigator joins us for a preview of what's to come. Then it's been a year since the Webb Space Telescope has been beaming back brilliantly beautiful images of our universe. We'll hear from one gallery curator about how the public is marveling in its cosmic wonder. And we'll meet the show's new producer, Marion Summerall. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Nearly seven years ago, NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida on a mission to visit an asteroid Bennu and return chunks of dirt and dust from its surface. The spacecraft successfully captured that sample, about two ounces of asteroid dirt, and has sent it on a trip back to Earth. So what do scientists hope to uncover from this cosmic package of space rock dust? Well, here to answer that question and preview the work ahead is Dante Loretta, a professor of planetary sciences at the University of Arizona and the principal investigator of NASA's OSIRIS-REx missions. Well, Dante, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Brandon. It's great to be here. So it's hard to imagine, Dante, that, you know, some seven years ago, you and I were looking at the spacecraft before it launched and now a tiny little portion of it is is heading back um with what it set out to do um this is probably the most excited i've been about rocks and dust uh in my entire life <laughs> you you and me both brendan you and me both so after seven years in space what what can we expect when this sample returns to utah well there's a couple aspects to that question there's the logistics of it right so it's a very complex set of operations involving the united states department of defense and other local federal agencies to get the capsule down to the ground and secured immediately upon its arrival on earth uh the plan is to very quickly get it to nasa's johnson space center in houston texas where we have built a dedicated curation facility and we've been that lab is fully functional. It's completely equipped. We've been doing rehearsals in there. It's really exciting to see that infrastructure come together. But of course, the real excitement is the sample. What is it? What is it made out of? And how quickly are we going to get our hands on it to start doing the science that we dreamed about seven years ago and even longer? And and just describe what is inside this, this sample cache. What is actually coming back? Right. So we have the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft itself, which is like a satellite about the size of a minivan that went to asteroid Bennu, surveyed it, went down using a long robotic arm with a sample collection mechanism attached to it, contacted the surface briefly, and we think picked up about 250 grams or eight ounces of material. Uh, that is was contained inside basically an air filter-like device. We collected the sample using gas stimulation to push gravel and dust into a filter. And that filter was removed from the robotic arm and placed inside the sample return capsule. The entire spacecraft is coming back to the vicinity of the Earth, but about four hours before we would hit the top of the atmosphere, it releases this capsule, which is about like 65 inches in diameter. It looks like a mini version of the kind of capsules that astronauts come back from space station and, and maybe other missions in the future. Uh, the spacecraft will then fire its rocket engines and avoid hitting the Earth and stay in orbit around the sun, actually on its journey to a new 
asteroid, asteroid Apophis, for an extended mission. Yeah, we'll talk a bit about what's what's ahead for for Bennu itself. But turning back to this this sample, I mean, this is a sample coming from the asteroid Bennu, um, something like hundreds of millions of miles away from Earth. What could we possibly learn from this uh, with it being so far away? Why does it matter to me, Dante? Good question, Brennan. And uh, Bennu is a really special kind of asteroid, right? We picked it specifically as the target for this mission. First of all, because it's a near-Earth asteroid, it has a non-zero probability of impacting the Earth, which is part of our science, is to understand that risk and ways we might mitigate it. Uh, but most importantly, it's a really dark object, one of the darkest objects in the, in the solar system, meaning it reflects a very small percentage of the light that strikes its surface, like darker than asphalt or coal. And we believe, and, and that's confirmed by the spacecraft instruments that it's a lot of carbon on the surface that's causing those optical properties and so we're interested in the carbon chemistry uh, kind of you know immediately and why because this asteroid its chemistry was established over four and a half billion years ago before the earth existed and it has survived the chaotic history of the solar system for that extensive period of time and now is a time capsule for what was happening at the dawn of the solar system. And what I'm really interested in is how did the origin of life get started? And one idea is that these kinds of carbon-rich asteroids delivered what we call the seeds of life or the prebiotic molecules that went on to participate in the origin of life on Earth. Do you expect you'll, you'll see evidence of, of the seeds of life in, in this sample when it comes back? We absolutely expect to see evidence of what I would call prebiotic chemistry. And what, so let's get a little more specific about what that means. We're looking at the carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, oxygen, sulfur, and phosphorus. Those are kind of like the big six elements that make up most life forms on Earth. There's lots of trace elements and metals and things like that that do important roles in biology. What we want to know, we know those elements are going to be on better. So that, that far we, we've got, yeah, you got the atoms. But then it's what molecular shape are they in? Do they look like anything interesting that's used in biology? We fully expect amino acids, which are used to make our proteins in our everything on Earth. Uh, nucleic acids, which is where all the genetic information is stored and then translated and, and transcribed into proteins through DNA and RNA. And so we're looking for the little pieces that come together to make those long molecules that drive biology today. And then try to say, did they start to link up? Are there two amino acids that are connected together? We would call that a peptide. That would be a mini little protein. That would be super exciting. And and Dante, you you mentioned that you know Bennu has survived you know some four and a half billion years. Um, do you know why? And and has has some of the observations that Osiris Rex the spacecraft done? Um, helped you understand just how it's it's survived this long in such a tumultuous universe that we live in it's an interesting question because Bennu as it currently exists you know it's about 500 meter or a little over 1600 feet across that's a pretty small body when it comes to planets and moons and things that are in the solar system that we're familiar with uh, and that would have been pushed out of the solar system within a billion years just due to a phenomenon called the Yarkovsky effect which we're interested in which deals with how sunlight changes asteroid orbits uh, so Bennu couldn't have existed as a, as the size that it's in. It was in a much bigger asteroid for most of solar system history, and it existed out in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. And there's a whole there's millions of objects that exist in that region of the solar system, and basically they're the building blocks of planets 
But Jupiter being out there at five astronomical units prevented a planet from growing in that region of the solar system and left it all as asteroids, including the asteroid of which Bennu is a fragment of. And we think Bennu's parent was destroyed in a giant collision on the order of a billion years ago. And Bennu is just a pile of rubble of the debris from that amazing explosion that collapsed back in on itself and then migrated into the inner solar system where it exists today. Fascinating. And, and, and I know that, that when you arrived at Bennu, um, I spoke with you and some of your colleagues about this. I mean, it was a very surprising <laughs> environment, right? I mean, this is, this is not what you expected. What, what, have, what have you all learned about this asteroid uh, so far? We like to say Bennu is the uh, cosmic trickster. It's always playing with our minds, and, and since since we met it, <laughs> so it's it's kind of its nature. We we embrace it and we love it. We love the challenges that it faced. But getting the sample was not easy. It was a real expedition adventure. We had to upgrade the guidance capabilities on the spacecraft to fit into some really tight areas, and it was due to a misinterpretation of the astronomical data, the telescope data that we used to design the original mission concept. Which is great. We learned a lot about how you analyze telescope data, understand the rocky nature of asteroid surfaces. So that'll be useful for all future explorers of asteroids. And I would say for me, what we learned that's really exciting scientifically is, first of all, it was the right target. It has the minerals and the chemicals that are exactly what we want to answer the kinds of questions that we're asking about the origin of life. And even more exciting, it looks like there are rock types on Bennu that are unlike anything in the meteorite collection. Because we do get free samples of asteroids. They land on Earth as meteorites. They're biased. Only the strong stuff survives. It looks like a lot of the stuff on Bennu is really weak and fragile and crushable. We're very easily crushable. It wouldn't survive past its true Earth's atmosphere, which means we're getting our hands on some stuff we've never seen before scientifically. That's always exciting. You don't know what it is, but it's going to be something new and you have to figure it out. But more importantly, the mineralogy that we see on the asteroid really looks like they formed in a hydrothermal system, a large scale hydrothermal system. But by that, I mean hot water flowing through rock over large scales and over long times. And that's exactly the kind of environment we think the origin of life might have happened on Earth. And we see that today in um, hydrothermal vents at the ocean floor, where we go and we try to understand what ancient sites like that might have looked like on our planet. Turns out Bennu might record that without the biology. So that's pretty exciting for us. And as you mentioned, I mean, this this is a, a much different type of, of sample you're getting because it, it's it's very delicate and crushable because it's coming back in a very protected, literally a spacecraft in itself, right? I mean, why is why has it taken this long to get to this point? What what kind of technological advances have kind of paved the way for the sample return missions? Yeah, sample return really is, I like to say, the gift that keeps on giving. And it started back in the 1960s with NASA's Apollo program, with uh, Apollo 11 bringing back a small amount of rocks. And then through Apollo 17, ultimately hundreds of kilograms of lunar material was returned and is still curated and allocated to scientists out of Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. And people are still analyzing those samples and still learning new things about the moon, how the moon formed, how the moon and the earth got water and other compounds like that. Uh, and so that that's kind of the gold standard for sample return is humans on the moon grabbing rocks and bringing them back. We've had a couple NASA sample return missions, the Genesis mission, which collected solar wind ions, and the Stardust mission, which collected comet dust. 
And then the, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, has had some successful asteroid sample return missions called Hayabusa and Hayabusa 2. And we have taken all those lessons. We studied all those missions intently. Uh, Hayabusa 2 was particularly fun because we were at the asteroids at the same time, and I was on their team, and a lot of the Japanese colleagues were on my team, and we were sharing lessons learned in real time, uh, you know, tactical awareness. They brought their sample back in December of 2020, and of course, we're coming home in September of uh, 2023. So very exciting time um, when it comes to sample returns. But Dante, before I let you go, one final question, because um, you kind of teased this at the start. There is a non-zero chance that this thing might impact us. Uh, <laughs> what do we know about that? And uh, should I be concerned? Right. So Bennu is the top of the potentially hazardous asteroid list. Uh, so that means of all the asteroids that we know about, Bennu is the most likely to hit us. But you absolutely should not be worried about it right now for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're on it. We got there. We characterized it. We know all about it. Um, if it's going to hit, and the probability is one out of 1,750. So it's still really low, uh, even though it's the highest that we know of. And the impact would be about 160 years in the future. So you could put September 24th, 2182 on your calendar. And that'll be the day, if Benny's coming, that the impact occurs. Dante Loretta is the leader of NASA's OSIRIS-REx Asteroid Sample Return Mission. Uh, Dante, thanks so much for joining us. Congrats on, on coming to the, the finish line of this mission, and can't wait to see what you all learn. Thanks, Brennan. Great to be back. Still to come, a year of space telescope images are astounding audiences here on Earth. A look back on the year of wonder from Webb. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. It's been a year since the Webb Space Telescope has been beaming back brilliantly beautiful images of our universe. Some of those images are on display here in Florida at the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona Beach on a massive scale. We took a trip to that gallery a few weeks ago for a previous show to marvel at these huge prints of Webb observations. And we thought we'd reach back out to the exhibit's curator, Seth Mayo, once more to see how the public is reacting to these cosmic images. Uh, well, Seth, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So it's been a year that the JWST has been beaming back images. Um, it's been a few weeks since you've had your exhibit uh, unfolding the universe out there. What has been the reaction uh, from folks walking through the Museum of Art and Sciences? Yeah, I've really seen people just astounded by these images, and um, it's really kind of taking the breath away. I've heard that many times before from our guests uh, as they walk through this gallery uh, that we have here. Um, they're just loving uh, how much this telescope, this observatory can see. So it's not just these deep views of you know galaxies and nebula, which are, of course, gorgeous and amazing, but also really interesting perspectives and views of planets within our solar system, which we're featuring in our exhibit as well. Um, so it's really great to see this this enormous response, this enormous amount of um, excitement and energy for astronomy from all ages. We've seen it from the youngest of guests um, to the oldest and everyone in between. So I think that's what's so great about a mission like this and, and an exhibit like this that we have to highlight this mission is that it's exciting for everybody um, and all walks of life. 
as well. So we're really seeing that uh, that energy um, and uh, enthusiasm for space and astronomy, which of course we love to see here. Astounded is a good word to describe it because that is how I felt when I was standing in front of these, you know, massive images that that you all have printed out. Um, and as you mentioned, and as our listeners may know. You know, this goes from, you know, planetary observations all the way to some of these deep field views that it's getting. Is there a particular place in in your exhibit, Seth, that people seem to, pardon the pun, gravitate towards um, <laughs> and spend a little additional time? Maybe that is a little more astounding than than some of the other images that are in, in your gallery. Oh, yeah, we're uh, we're no um, stranger to stellar puns uh, here for sure. But uh, yeah. Um, there's definitely a couple on my, uh, on my mind, um, right off the bat. So one is our, uh, just a beautiful image we have from Webb of Jupiter. And it's more of just a singular shot of the planet. And you're seeing Jupiter in different colors. You know, um, this is an infrared light. So they saw in various colors, depending on the wavelength and to see Jupiter in this unique way is highlighting the storms, um, in an interesting way. And so I think people have seen our eight foot by eight foot version of Jupiter, uh, a unique looking Jupiter and seeing the, the what's normally called the great red spot, but white in web images. So it looks a little differently, but seeing a storm the size of Earth up close and seeing this and the enormity of Jupiter has been exciting for our guests. Uh, and the other photo, and this is one of my favorites too, that I think a lot of people stop at and you can tell that they're just falling in love with the image is the pillars of creation. And of course, if you're into astronomy and space, uh, you know that name. Uh, it's just a famous nebula, a star-forming nebula um, that's about 7,600 light years away. And the image we have of it is five by 10 foot, pretty big, um, in our gallery, in our, in our stellar region of our gallery. And uh, that image is just colorful and interesting. And the shapes you see of the gas clouds uh, really, uh, again, is astounding, as we've said before. Um, and uh, the, the picture, again, is one of my favorites, not just visually, but the story it tells um, when it comes to stars being born and potentially planets and solar systems being born um, around those stars uh, in, this, in this image. And so those two, off, right off the top of my head, are the ones that come to mind that people stop at and just are um, blown away by it. We spoke before the gallery opened. Um, I know you had some expectations as to what you wanted your guests to take away um, from walking through these incredible images. Um, what has been the response when they leave the gallery? And is is it what you expected, Seth? Um, so, no, it, I, I've been just overwhelmed by the, the positivity um, that we've gotten from this. And we've gotten so many um, uh, compliments uh, from, again, people of all ages that said that was just an amazing experience. They had never seen anything like that before. And so that um, has been just so nice to hear that. You know, we put a lot of work into this, but also, again, nice from the more astronomer side of me, too, of people being that excited about space um, and just that enthused by it. Uh, I've, I've loved to see that. I love seeing that um, response uh, from our guests walking through. And so I was. I was, of course, hopeful that you know people would have this response, but I think it's been an overwhelming um, pouring of of um, compliments um, to the images and to the exhibit itself, which has been um, so um, gratifying. It's been it's been amazing. So um, yeah, I think the level of positivity for it um, is, is more than I expected for sure. Beyond the the 
exhibit, Seth, you also have a planetarium at at your museum. You're interacting with with lots of young people um, and older people uh, who come in to to view some of the planetarium shows. How how important are these kind of visual assets that we get from things like JWST and um, the Hubble Space Telescope in in inspiring? those younger people or or the general public that come through your doors what role does it play in telling the story of who we are and, and where we are oh that's a great question yeah so um i mean i feel like that's the uh epitome of what we do is trying to inspire um our guests and and people that come to the planetarium and through our museum and just being an educator myself um, we want people to come away with um a sense of wonder and curiosity right for the universe around them and so having a picture um, that you can see and just right off the bat connect with because of its beauty, because of how in, you know intricate it may be, um, how abstract it may be. Um, sometimes mysterious, it draws you in too. The mysteriousness of these images and what you might be looking at pulls you in and maybe um, brings out some of your curiosity. And that's something we always strive to bring out of people is just to stay curious and to wonder, right? And that's how we learn and how we grow. And that's why we explore, right? Because we have those feelings and those emotions. Um, so um, I think it's so vital to have these pictures to help us do that, to drive interest um, uh, for for science um, and uh, for space, um, which we love. And, um, you know, uh, it doesn't help or doesn't hurt to have a pretty picture um, um, to draw you in at first. And then, you know, once you saw them on that, you can s uh, show them all the more amazing things that are out there. And so, uh, and it's also nice to have, um, a nice resource of background images for your phone or your desktop. <laughs> and, and Seth, finally, I, I think I know the answer to this question, but, um, you know, this is only the first year of, of images from JWST. Are, are you excited for, for what's to come? Oh, certainly so. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing so many new images since this exhibit um, opened, you know, a new uh, views of Saturn um, and, you know, just recently a new picture of a star forming region called Ro Ophiuchi, which is just gorgeous. And uh, again, like you're saying, it's just the first year. It's really just scratching the surface. And I compare it to like Hubble, right? Hubble Space Telescope uh, has been around for over 30 years. And look how much has come from Hubble over the years and how much we learned. And I'm just so excited to think about what we're going to learn from Webb over 5, 10, 20, maybe more than 20 years of observation. And so I always say that uh, I grew up with Hubble and I always knew it was there in space and showing us amazing things. And kids today get to grow up with Webb, the James Webb Space Telescope, and they get to see all the exciting things that are going to come from it too. And so, yeah, I'm truly excited to see uh, what's coming from it, especially what we've seen so far over this past year. That was Seth Mayo, Curator of Astronomy at the Museum of Arts and Sciences. The Daytona Beach Museum's exhibit, Unfolding the Universe, runs through October. And finally, you might have heard a new name in the credits of last week's show. Marion Summerall has joined us here on Are We There Yet as the show's new producer. She joins us now to introduce herself. 
Well, Marion, literally, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brendan. I'm really excited to be working with you and overall just working on the show and being your producer. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. So let's let's chat a bit about your background first, Marion, because this is not your first rodeo when it comes to radio. <laughs> Tell us a bit about your foray into the wonderful medium of audio. Yeah, absolutely. So originally when I was in school, um, I really wanted to do the print side. That was like really what I thought I was going to do. You know, obviously I'm here. So um, Rick Brunson um, at UCF mentioned Next Gen, um, not only in our class, but also um, just to me as well. And I decided, you know what? I've never touched radio, but I'm going to try. And what is Next Gen Radio? Next Gen Radio is an NPR program where they um, basically take students from around different states at different times of the year, and you apply to this program, and about five are selected. And for a week long um, during the program, you produce a multimedia story. Um, you know, the audio feature of it, the written portion of it, um, and you work with a mentor as well. And when I was accepted into the program, um, my mentor was Rick Brunson. So it was a Phenomenal experience. Um, I did my story on Eddie White, who is a citrus grower in Sanford. Um, and again, that was really what sparked my interest in radio. I came in every day excited to get back to work. Mm -hmm. Sparked an interest in radio. What did it teach you about radio? It taught me that there is so much um, meaning behind sound. You know, before walking into that experience, we really don't think about how much sound impacts not only um, an audience, but also just being able to connect with people on a deep, deeper level. I really learned that. And that's what really sparked my interest is being able to tell the stories of other people, but also be able to share somebody else's voice. I think that that's so important. And mm -hmm. that's really the overall message I got. And also that there are so many different things that you can do in radio and i just found that extremely intriguing mm -hmm. there's so many different things to do in radio but still you chose to come here and work on are we there yet why why <laughs> yes. are you so interested in this show well first of all um working with you before brendan um when i was the executive producer of the sounds of central florida project again with rick brunson at which UCF. was a, a partnership between 90.7 wmfe news and ucf nicholson school of communication and media right yes that really sparked my interest just because I saw the work ethic and the community collaboration that WMFE had. I realized that there was no place I would rather work than here. Um, and specifically with Are We There Yet? I have been listening to the show for a very long time now. Space has always been something that has interested me. I remember drawing pictures of myself as an astronaut <laughs> when I was little and being able to work here and not only work on the show, you know, space also as an adult, I think that when I view it, I think of all of the hope and the possibilities that we as humans can learn and receive from the cosmos. And mm. that sparked my interest. And I really love producing and I love editing and I, I'm just really excited to be here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Marion Summerall is the new producer for Are We There Yet? and a reporter with the 90.7 WFE Newsroom. Marion, so glad to have you on board. Thank you, Brendan. I'm really excited. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
we got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org slash space. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News and produced by Marion Summerall. Our intern is Amy Diaz. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>